G'day, David. How you doing? Not bad. Not bad? What do you mean, not bad? What have you been doing this morning? Oh, well, helping the son do the maintenance around his new office. Yes. So what is it you do? Today, yeah. I mowed the lawn, cut the bamboo, did the edges. What a loving father. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> Those bamboos, where they're forever coming back. Mate, cannot kill it. Comes back day after day, drench it with chlorine even. Doesn't make any difference. Ah. Pops up a week later. So the reason that I wanted to talk to you today, it's mainly because I think you're a very inspiring person. Uh, from the little that I've I been questioning around people about you, I, I know that you have probably achieved some crazy things in life. And for a guy that says, well, you know, I'm just like everybody else, I think that you're not. And it's probably time that you, if you can, it's probably time that you share some of this with people because I think that's going to help. If it helps even one life, I think it's worthwhile, you know. And the journey you have done, last night I was reading through some of your notes and I couldn't sleep for two hours because that's when I realized how incompetent I was. And so I'm sure this podcast is going to be an amazing one. Like, for example, you're semi-retired, correct? That's right. When did you retire? About 15 years ago. I think it was about 2005. Right. And I, for a couple of years... How old were you then? I was uh, about 47. Right, I see. So, and I just said, that's it, done. Yes. And you see, just that one bit, it's not normal, right? Most of us, we're thinking now about 65 or maybe even 70. So to hear that someone's done that at 47, uh, it's just out of this world already. So just tell me a little bit about you. Well, I was probably the worst student you could ever get to going to school. Yes. I left school at 15. Did my, in those days, just called the school certificate, which in today's terms is uh, like year 10. I passed, but no excitement on the, on the results and just started work being yep. a storeman. In my younger days, I was always very hungry. Yes. Very hungry to earn a dollar or make a dollar or achieve something, even though that I didn't have the education for it, that sort of thing. But I was a paper boy. I used to deliver medicine for the chemists, like to Yeah, I read that yesterday. I couldn't believe that. <laughs> yeah, like you just hop on your push bike and you drive all over Ermington and Rydalmere and deliver scripts. There weren't many rules back in those days. I mean, I can't believe that uh, people would give medication these days, right, to a young, what is it, 12-year-old? Yeah, uh, 12, yeah, probably 11, 12, 13. I mean, these days, those young kids probably would use it for themselves or even uh, <laughs> yeah, auction it. Some of them, yeah, yeah. yeah they, <laughs> The medicine wouldn't turn up. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but no, and I did that for quite a few years, to, like even while I was in high school even, earned reasonably good money. Yes. Um, but I was always hungry. I was you know, putting things together, collecting scrap metal, finding um, um, second-hand tyres, and there was a place at West Ride that used to pay me and they used to retread the tyres. And they used to give me back then, I think it was... It was like $2 a tyre or something. Wow. My poor dad had to put him in the back of his car and drive to West Ride and I'd collect me $2 a tyre. So I was always hungry. I was yes. always hungry, in, in especially in my early part of life. Just proceeded from there being a storeman and I wasn't 
wasn't exactly happy. There was no money in being D- a storm. You're going too fast for me. You're going too fast for me. So would you say that in those early years, there was something in you, there was a click? You were thinking already differently to most young kids. I mean, young kids these days would be playing Playstations. Or so for a young child, how old were you, 12, did you say? Probably, I think I started my paper run at nine. Yes. So would you say that from the paper run, from collecting scrap, from going around delivering, I mean, coming up with the idea to deliver medicine for chemists, did you have a click somewhere? Is there something in your head that went, hold on, this is, this is me, this is how I want to live my life? Well, I always told my, um, my mum and dad or my, or my father that um, I want, always wanted to be, I want to be a millionaire. Yes. <laughs> and at that age, you, you didn't understand what a millionaire was yes. entirely. Not like today, because a million million dollars in today's money is n- not what it was back then. No. But that was my achievement. I, I, I wanted to, I was hungry for money yes. all my life. Younger days, even up until today, except not as hungry anymore, so to speak. And, you know, went from there. Everything that I tried, I always tried to do the best. And I wasn't interested in taking days off work or when I work for people. You know, if I got paid to go to work, that's what I did. Yeah. C- can I just um, have a look at this term, hungry for money? That's not greed, is that? No. Okay. I just I just wanted to buy things for myself. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 and probably a little bit of greed because I, I always wanted to be, if you went to the Easter show with 10 mates. Yes. I wanted to come home with 20 show bags, not 10. Yes. So... Whether that was a little bit of greed or no, ego, I wouldn't. Or I, wouldn't I wouldn't put it as greed. I'd put that as competition. Yeah, ego, competition. Yeah, but yeah, I never wanted to go without because my mother and father they they were reasonably, but they there was no extra money for the kids. They we had to earn our own pocket money, so to speak. So yes, and and so were they insti- the instigators of you going out there and getting your own business, getting your own money for running. Doing the run for chemist, um, or you came up with these ideas? No, I, I I think I just was applying for jobs. Like the right. pap- the paper run was first. Yes. Then there was the the job. Oh, actually, my brother was doing the the um, prescription run. Yes. And then he got a little. He was three or four years older than me. And then when he left, I applied for the job, and and the chemist right. gave it to me. Kept right. it in the family, so to speak. Right. But I was always looking for the next thing. Okay, so then you left school, uh, what is it? Um, I was about 15. Yes, that was after year 10. Yep. 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 And uh, straight away I started as a like an assistant storeman working for a company that used to make the plastic S-traps that were under your sinks. Yes. And, uh, and I started to do that and he used to assemble them and manufacture them and then had a chain of people to put them together. Yes. And I was lucky enough that I learnt how to put them all together. And then he, that that gentleman, you know, what was his name, Mr Vincent from Jason Plastics, said he wanted to move to Queensland and set up a full production plant and I put it all together up there. And I was 17 by that stage. And he said to me, would you be interested in coming to, to Queensland to be in charge of showing all the girls on the assembly run? And at that stage, that was... A, like a at seventeen years old, that was Great a big job. opportunity. Yep. So after speaking with me mum and dad, they a bit scared, but they said go for it. And I was up there for about two years. Unfortunately, the the company 
had financial problems after a couple of years and I come back to Sydney. Yes. From there, I worked actually at my father's. He worked for Unilever or Lever and Kitchen. Yes. Which is the same company. And I was just um, an assistant to a fitter and turner, which in those days used to be called an iron worker. You just hand them the tools. Yes. You didn't do anything. But I was always very good with the tools and I used to get into trouble because the fitter and turner would say, go and, go and do that because I knew what I was doing. Yep. Even though I didn't have a certificate or anything like that. So I did that for a couple of years. Then I had a horrific car accident in a place called Pilica Scrub, which is out at Canamble. And I crushed my leg and I was in hospital for 112 days in a Thomas splint without getting out of bed. Right. And from there, I had to start thinking, what the hell am I going to do? So you had 111 days in hospital. to think? Yes. But to be honest, I wasn't thinking too much about work because <laughs> it wasn't wasn't a pretty um, it wasn't a pretty visit. But um, and then I come up with a stupid idea, or good idea, or I was going to become a professional gambler. Okay. So because I love the horses. Yes. So what happens? I starts to go to the racetrack, and I started with a, a five hundred dollar float, which in back in those days was a lot of money. Yes. And I lasted about six months and was going okay. Then I got a bit cocky and dropped the whole lot in one weekend. So the, the professional punter went out the door. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd we go from there? Then I come up with an idea to try to get into the discount trade, which is in in all the discount shops in those days, like it was Golo, Crazy Clarks, Crazy Prices. But I was still a fair bit away from that because that takes a lot of money to open up a shop and all the rest of it. But I met a couple of blokes that had a, an importing company and I came up with the idea to have a Christmas shop. And what I mean by a Christmas shop is I found a vacant shop that I wanted to rent for two months, fill it full of goods, not just Christmas, but giftware and all the rest of it, discount it to out, of, like, out of control and have a big turnover but in two months. Well, that was extremely successful. and that, That's what pushed me on to getting into the discount trade. Yeah. Uh, how old were you then? I would have been... Uh, 19 or what? No, no, no. By then I was probably 20, 21. Yes. 20, 21, 22. Yep. That lasted for a couple of years. And I was... What a great... I idea. was earning... For two years, I earned a full year's good salary in the two months. So wow. for the rest of the year... I was just pottering around doing bits and pieces. Then I got hungry, hungry, and I met a, um, an old school friend who was working for a soft toy company and selling, he, was, he was selling soft toys, like cuddly toys, to news agencies and pharmacies and, and, and places like that. And he said, why don't you join me? And he said, well, we get 30% discount from the importer, so we make 30% on our sales. So we started that and it turned out to be like quite profitable yep. considering we used to put the goods in his garage and just just sell them to all the shops. Yes. And, and then we started to expand out of Sydney and then we thought, why don't we do a country run? So we'd spend two weeks and go either up the inland road through Orange and um, all those places all the way up to Queensland and then back down... Spend three, three or four nights on the Gold Coast. That was our 
avoid downtime. And then we'd work all the way back yep. visiting the two of us. We'd go to different shops and smother the town, but we'd take a full lot of stock with us. So in back those days, people used to have to order from Sydney, take a week to get, two weeks to get the stock. And they used to love us because we'd, we'd just open the back doors of the car and straight into the shop. And we thought, geez, this is a good service. So we expanded that. We carried that on for, I don't know, two, three years. Yes. And again, we, we, we made pretty good, actually we made very good money in that time. But we kept on thinking, there's got to be more to this. Then I opened up my first discount shop full time. So it's taken you now four, four years of going around selling to come up with the idea, now I'm going to do my own thing. Yeah, well, I had, then I had a bit of money. Yep. I had a bit of money to start because I wanted a discount shop. Yes. And I opened that in Auburn, Auburn Road, Auburn, which was at that stage full of a lot of immigrants and, yep. and, and that sort of stuff. People. Yeah, people. And we sold cigarettes and, and giftware. And we, I opened it up and it actually started to turn ridiculous money. Because there was only another, there was one chain called Crazy Clint's, and he, that gave me the inspiration of, Jesus, this is this is this is good business, this discount, and sales were extremely, extremely good, and, and expanded, opened up another shop in Hurstville, then after, I can't remember how many years, probably six, seven, eight years, maybe five years, I've decided that why don't we. Why don't I start trying to import goods and then sell it to other shops? So I seen some plastic wear, which is a copy of Tupperware. Yes. Which all the ladies know what, what that is. Yes. Expensive but good stuff. Yep. And I found the company, which was in um, in Thailand, about two hours drive out of Bangkok, and I made an appointment and flew over, drove out there. Never been to Asia before in my life and went to this massive factory and I was lucky enough that he gave me the opportunity because at first the gentleman who, who owned part of that business said we only deal with like large companies, not 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 a, a one-person band and all the rest of it. But he gave me the opportunity. I bought a container of plasticware, a 40-foot container, which at that stage was a lot of stock. But brought it back, showed it to a few people, and it was gone within about seven or eight days. No, no, you're going too fast. Right? <laughs> now you're going too fast. We're going to have to slow down. First of all, back in those days, what year are we talking about? Early 80s? I was, I was about 30, about 30, 31. Right, okay. So About 88. So the internet wasn't around. So how did you find that company? Um, facts. What do you mean, facts? You, you had well, to yeah, find them from somewhere. You, I mean, and, and secondly, you know, how <laughs> how did you convince these well, there, guys? There, there was there was some um, magazines around, like yes, from Asia, and and just picked up a few names, right, in in Thailand, and because at that stage the majority of good plasticware was coming out of Thailand, okay, and it was not expensive, so you could bring it in a whole container, and not financially like ruin you to start with and that's 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 why i just i started in thailand what did you tell this dude to persuade him you know i think i think he looked at me and thought 
Okay. I'm keen. I've come all the way to Australia. I've made an appointment. Come out. And he just said, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a chance. Maybe it was also the size of the order. He thought, who cares? The, the kids well, taking... the size of the order for those companies, one container yep. is nothing. It's okay. like it's you know like sweep it into the street sort of thing. But for you, it was a big that, life savings, wasn't it? Yeah, that was not so much life savings. I think it was like back then it was about twelve or fourteen thousand dollars. Yes, uh, but again, we're talking thirty odd years ago. Yeah. So the other thing I did was before I left, everything that I bought was about eight items. I took the samples back to Australia from Bangkok, because it was going to take like six to eight weeks before it yes. was manufactured, delivered, and all the rest of it. Before the container arrived, I'd probably sold 90% of it before it had arrived. Yes. And it only took me a week to get... Then I was doing all my own deliveries. <laughs> so it was just nobody... Only had a little warehouse, not even a warehouse. It was actually a um, a, a spare vacant shop yeah. opposite my retail shop in Auburn. And I used to fill that up <laughs> and just distribute from there. That's amazing. So, so what was the next step? Well, one container come to a two-container order and two went to five. Yes. Five went to eight, and that was all within like six to eight months. Then I decided to bring in some other merchandise, so I went to Hong Kong and started to pick up more kitchenware and bits and pieces and smaller quantities but a much bigger variety. Yes. And then started to go and visit all the stores and selling them goods. It just I was starting to pick up more customers and it was just getting bigger and then couldn't fit the goods into the shop anymore, yep. into the, the, the storage. Yes. So we drove out and there's some cold storage units up at um, Prospect and which is still there today and there were signs up, storage units for lease. And I thought, I don't need a cold storage, but maybe they've got a deal. Well, there was two available and they'd been sitting there so i offered him half the price for six months right and the guy took it so here we are we've got a warehouse now in a cold storage unit and everybody used to laugh at me because when you say they say where's your warehouse and you come up to the cold storage unit and and again we're only there for probably six months before we couldn't fit everything in the warehouse so i started to look for another warehouse and for there, we went into a place at um, Binney Road, Blacktown. That was about 12,000 square feet or something like that. Which yep. No, it wasn't even that big. can't even remember. But it wasn't a big warehouse. Yes. And again, we're only there for about a year. And all of a sudden, we can't fit into the warehouse. The orders were getting bigger and bigger and the import. But it was then it was becoming, how do I fund this thing? Because... Your goods are you, you've got to pay a deposit for the goods overseas. They they sit on water for, for two to three weeks, a week getting it delivered, and you've got to sell it to the customers. And back then, I, they all wanted you know thirty days credit. So I borrowed a hundred thousand dollars off my father, which he took out of his his retirement fund. Wow! And that what gave me that little bit of an edge to push forward. In that same year, there was two vacant warehouses, would you believe, in the same street. And by the end of that year, we were running three warehouses because the orders and the goods were just 
So I had got, and then we started to put on a few people. Had a driver to do the deliveries and the sales, and just everything grew extremely fast. And but I was hungry, so it didn't matter how much goods were coming, I wanted more. How old were you then? So when you started, probably thirty-three, thirty-four. So you were married now. You started in family. Yep. 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 Got got married to my lovely wife Nicole. Yes. In nineteen ninety. Very yeah. good. She's gonna listen to this, mate. Thank God you got it right. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, then realized that we can't survive working out of three warehouses, so we thought a massive warehouse at Silverwater, and I think it was like fifty thousand square feet, which is about five thousand square meters. Right. Wow. So uh, oh, well, let's take a punt. So we moved into it, and I can't remember how long we were there for, but. Think it was within the first four months that we were outgrown, couldn't fit into the warehouse, but we had a can't remember whether it was a one or a bit over a year lease that we got out of it and um, found a, a warehouse that was I think eighty thousand square feet in um, Chester Hill. By that stage, I've got six people in the warehouse, truck drivers, delivery people, girls in the office, even the wife did a little bit. I gave her one job. That was collecting debts, but that didn't last too long. She didn't like that. I always used to say that's the most important part: collecting, <laughs> collecting the money. And again, the business kept on going. The, that's where the the ANZ Bank started to lend us a lot of money. Yes. And back in those days, it was a lot easier to borrow then than it is is today. And the bank supported us because about sixty or sixty five percent of our sales were all at that stage. All to do with Christmas, Christmas decorations, but giftware, like for that, you know, for that eight-week period over Christmas, where every shop was busting at the seams, and the bank lent us quite a few million dollars, unsecured, even to this day. When I tell people we were a two-dollar company, I I didn't even I think my house was worth a hundred and eighty thousand, which I owed a hundred thousand dollars at that stage. Yes. So I virtually had all the only security they had was on the goods in the warehouse, which we all know you're never, never going to get your money back if it's a if it's a fire sale. But the ANZ stuck with us, and um, we pushed forward. And it was only about I'm not sure about the dates now, but we were there for probably two years, maybe three years, and again could not fit into that warehouse. It used to take us an hour and a half. Close up of a night time because everything was in the car park. Wow! So thought we've got to do something. Then the the ANZ Bank come to us and said, "I've got a mortgagee, a, a um, in possession. Yeah, of a warehouse in um, Toongabi, Girawin. It's on the border of Girawin and Toongabi. We went up there and, and it was about um, about a hundred thousand square feet, but with a massive outdoor coverage area." And it was up for sale, and but we could buy it. Which these days, I think the banks would have lost their job if they offered it offered it to you. Yeah. But back then, <laughs> they offered it, and they said they'd lend us the money. So bought that warehouse. It was sitting on um, uh, five acres in Girawin. So we had a lot of space for container trucks and so forth. And the business was still going so strongly. Then the banks used to sit sit with us, 
that we never went to the, the bank anymore. They used to come to our office. And I was dressed like I am today, shorts. Yeah. I've never been the, you know, the, the stand-up suit person. And they used to say, you've got to stay within your budget. And I said, listen, you've lent us all this money continuously to buy stock Christmas time, and you're saying, stay in your budget. If I stayed in your, the budget that you want me to stay in, this company would be still in Blacktown. And I got cranky and I said, if you don't want to lend us the money, we're out. And they said, no, 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 you've always paid your bill because we used to pay all of our debts first three weeks of January because everybody for Christmas. So anyway, so they stuck by us. Yes. And that was, and that warehouse, because we had the land, we'd outgrown within the first, seriously, six months. That's how fast the business... By this stage, we're probably doing probably um, $50 million a year. So going from the first year where we did seventy-five dollars or $100,000 yep. over a 10-year period, up, not even 10 years, up to like $50 million. So we decided to get a, um, a building company to extend the warehouse. But we had to get rid of 772 truckloads of dirt because it was on an embankment. Yep. So we dug, excavated it out and put on another um, 55,000 square feet. So now we've got a warehouse, 140,000 square feet, so to speak, but with a massive undercover. could park 10 to 12 containers outside, unload them. Yep. And we were in our element then. And then, then we were pushing but so what made us get so big yep. is probably um, five years before that, I bumped into, well not, we started to sell to a company called Golo, who at that stage had about 11 or 12 shops. And another guy in Queensland, Robert Clark, he owned Crazy Clarks. And anybody that lives in Queensland would know then, Crazy Clark stores, they're the Yeah, I know the that best. too. <laughs> so I got really on... W- good with these guys and they started to buy more and more office and all the rest of it because I never told them bullshit. We just gave them the right price and they, they were the, the up-and-coming discounters. After after about six or seven months, we were spending they were spending that much money with me. I thought, I've got to keep these guys. This is So I thought, maybe I'll take these guys overseas and I'll work on a cost-plus basis, whatever they buy. And I offered them a ridiculous price. At that stage, I think it was like cost plus 11% because it's a discount. There's no big margins in this stuff. Anyway, they said, okay, we'll come. And from there, it was whichever factory we went into, they would just say, I'll have 50 cartons of this, 50 cartons of that. And then I'd buy, at that stage, it was like 50, 50, 50. Yep. I'd buy 50 for all my other customers. So I was getting orders off my own customers Secured, so I knew that was just going to increase our business and sales, and then we all got together and had a bit of an explosion on the Golo side that you know, we'd help them out with a bit more credit because the bank was giving us. So they started to open up more shops, more shops. So I was getting internal growth without even doing any work. Yep, yep. And that was probably the, the major success to to go from fifty going forward to when we sold the company, which we sold, sold, I think we were doing like $135 million yes. in sales. But that's only in the wholesale. So what made you decide to sell? Before we, 
like going back a few years, we had the opportunity. One of the directors of Golo was wanted out of the company, so the, the two directors said to me, "Would you like to buy his share?" And I thought, "Cross, what an opportunity this is!" And it was a lot of money, but I thought. I'm guaranteed to get more orders, even more than what I was getting, because now I'm going to be part of that company. And I thought that was a, an easy solution. So we joined the company, and I, I had 16% is what I, I, I got out of that. We, as, as I said, we, the guy from Crazy Clarks, we were called the Three Musketeers. The sales were just going out of control. And by that stage, Golo had was up around 100 stores, Crazy Clark, 85 stores, Plus, I was selling to every Tom, Dick and Harry in Australia. Mm -hmm. So sales were just out of control. And the hungry, which I was still wasn't, I was happy. But I used to get not happy about how much I was turning over. It was more the volume when you're overseas and you see other importing companies and you start negotiating on 300,000 camping chairs. And they go, where are you from? <laughs> Australia can't be. Australia doesn't buy that much because we we were punters and if I if we seen if, and I was also called you know the prostitute of the business because Woolworths or and create and Big W and Targets they would have their catalogs and they'd be selling like a camping chair for twenty dollars. It's no good selling it for fifteen. It's not enough. So we'd find the factory and made it nine ninety nine put it in the catalogue and sold 380, this is going on a few months, like 380,000 chairs in seven days out of Golo. And that's when we really started to push some more volume. But even though I was working on very small margin, Golo was working on small margin, but the talk built their shops so more people would come and start to buy because the price was ridiculous on some of the items. Yeah. So the whole part of it grew so quickly and we're all turning over a lot of money and then we decided this is getting too big. Why don't we join all the companies and try and put it on the stock exchange? But obviously we didn't know jack shit about <laughs> about how to put it on, yeah. on the stock exchange. So we thought, why don't we pay the guy down in Macquarie Street or whatever to explain to us, is it possible or whatever? We went in there and they got a. There's so many things before you can go get listed. A, the turnover was right, but each company had to be squeaky clean. So we, um, he put it to us, but just their commission was going to be in excess of a million dollars to do just to do all the, the work for it. Yep. And we thought this. Is this is like a lot of money, and it's going to take. And he said, "You got to, It'll take two years." And we thought, "We can't keep on funding it because you can imagine by this stage, if if we did join it, we now we've got like probably three hundred stores, and and the import side. So it was probably out of control where there had to be an end to the situation eventually, because then you got that many big stores in Westfields." Then they all wanted personal guarantees, and then it gets starts to get scary when you've got, you know, eighty shops that are ten, fifteen thousand dollars a week rent. So we thought, why don't we look for some somehow to, to sell the whole business? 
And it was funny because as we were leaving that office, the chairman of Miller's Fashion, who was a clothing company which owned, um, then it was Miller's Fashion, um, Katie's, that they had like six or seven brands, but and they were a public company. And he said, are you guys looking to sell your business? We said, yeah, yeah, but we're not in clothing because he, they introduced us to it. And he said, no, nah. he said, why don't you come and see me tomorrow? And it was the fastest purchase of all of our companies. Within 30 days, he'd purchased the Golo and the Crazy Clarks. I was unfortunate because he said, my company looks sharp. We don't, want, we don't want an importing wholesaler. We just want retail. So I was very deflated. So I went along with it. But within 30 days, he had, they bought the Golo and the Crazy Clark side of it, which we all got a good return. But everybody had to work for five years and offered us an um, extremely good um, incentive if we reached over in the first 12 months, reached a target, they distribute another $20 million between all the directors, which on a percentage basis. Yep. Unfortunately, I only had the 16%, but still. <laughs> and again, like the three directors, uh, we were extremely hungry still. And uh, we thought, it's too good an offer. So we signed up. But then six months later, this is in 2000 then, and six months later, I'm still stuck on the sideline, got my own company, still selling you know, all the millions of dollars to these guys and everybody else, but I didn't have an out. And the bigger that they got, I still had to find it to fund it, which gets to a point when it's just too big a dollars. And at that stage, ANZ was lending us up to $70 million unsecured, which I know. Yeah, even your look on your face now, you talking shit. <laughs> and that's what it was. All they had was the security over um, stock in the warehouse. But anyway, we finally convinced the board of Millers, why are we buying, why you keep on giving all the money to look sharp? Why don't we just, why don't you just buy it? It's stupid. We're, you know, $50 million a year, we're buying off him, so we're just giving him the profit. Why not? So they decided, okay, we'll do look sharp. So in 2001, they bought my company, and uh, I had to work for four and a half years. Yeah. So then you retired, 46. Exactly, 46, 47. Yep. And because I used to spend six months a year in China, yep. away from my young family and, and my, my wife, I promised the day that I go, I said, I'm, I'm not going to do anything. Yep. I said, we'll spend time and we'll go on lots of holidays. And that's, that's my... Um, Your story, great story. Yeah, but it's only half of the story. Here yep. are the things that I really want to explore yep. because those are the things that could actually teach even a, a person running a small business yep. a few things, especially in the mindset. Number one... You have a different mindset to most people in terms of money. Money is nothing to you? Uh, money is, is always, I want plenty of it. Yeah, I understand that. But the way that you think about it, it's, I, I had nothing. If I go back to nothing, it's fine. So, so you, I, do you I, know a lot of people, they start to make money, they start to be fearful of losing it? Yes. I, I, didn't, I didn't see that as you're talking that now. No, no. Um, I probably lose more money at the racetrack than I do anywhere else. <laughs> but, but, that, but, that, but that's... I only lose what I can afford, so that's all right. But 
I was I'm always was pushing onto my staff. It's it's more about finding the right goods, finding the right price. And once once you've got that, then you've got to make sure that your manufacturer is the right manufacturer and always be kind and fair with your manufacturer in China or any other Asian country because if they don't make a dollar, those goods eventually are not going to arrive exactly the way that you ordered them. So teaching that to a lot of the staff at first was quite difficult, but I used to have one policy with, with all my staff and it was called the five Ps of life. And it was prior planning prevents piss poor performance. Right. That stuck with a lot uh, of my uh, stuff. Let, let me say it again. So, so what is it? Prior prior planning, planning yep. prevents piss poor performance. <laughs> so, as long as you stick to those rules, I think that that will keep people in touch with what you've got to do. And you've always got to be fair with whoever you deal with, because it can never be lopsided to the point where you've got an unhappy supplier. Yep, yep. And that's that's a key thing. You, you know, some businesses they oh, go, we'll go and screw that company, we'll give them nothing, and all the rest of it. It's short term solution. You need a long term partner. Yeah, and in that respect, that's what I meant. I don't think that you could use the word greed earlier. You know, because a greedy person is about how do I screw everybody else so that I can make a bit more of a back. You know, how can I just go and 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 get a reduction here, even though I know I've got it well already. And and I don't think you can use the word greed in that respect. I, I think that for you to even say, the first thing is to be fair to your suppliers and make sure they they got a their own dollar in there. I, I think that that's very street smart. But there is something about money. You never had the fear of losing everything. I think everybody has the fear of losing everything, but just knowing that you don't put yourself in the in that position that you. Once you've made it, that you you potentially can lose everything, but living, you can still live a very extravagant lifestyle. But basic things for me, it doesn't bother me. You know whether I've got to drive a twelve-year-old car or 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 you know eat at the cheapest restaurant that I can find. I'm always about saving a dollar. But if I do go out and If I've got to pay thirty dollars for a cocktail, well, I'll pay thirty dollars for a cocktail. Yeah, yeah. But no, I've never been in the point like losing it, worried that much. But then again, I've I've never put myself into a position that I could lose it after I've made it. Right. A percentage of it is always going to be there because later on we did some um, building and building some houses. So sometimes the price is out of your control because of the market. Yeah. But no, I was never, never greedy to the point. There's now another thing I've also picked up is you seem to have a flair for opportunities. Is that something that is um, innate, or is that something that you develop as you start to see more and more businesses and you travel and start seeing more opportunities? I think when I was when I was when I was hungry, I would go to many other different countries. And I would be looking outside the box, is what I always say. And whether it be finding something that I could get manufactured in a different country and turn it from a, an expensive product, but or develop something, or if there was a housing boom, I, you, 
yes, I, w- I was always looking for a different opportunity to go into or to expand, and obviously not always you're right. So on the 80-20 rule, um, you know, if you win 80% and lose 20%, you're still going to come out in front. And yeah, you're a punter, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that, that's, my, that's my only downside. I don't think there's a day go past in my life when I don't have a bet on something. Wow. Not necessarily horses or sports or yep. playing the foreign exchange markets. So that's just not my life. I've been a punter all my life, and I think I'll be betting on the day that I die. That's amazing. Uh, so that that's the thing. So that flair with the money, that attitude that you have, that is, if, if I win four times out of five, I'm cool. And, and so there is that calculated risk that you do take. Yep. Yeah? You've, always, you've always got 20% the way I've worked it. Yes. You've, there's always a 20% chance that you're going to do your dollars. But as long as you can keep that 80 up there, you're always going to be covered at the end of the year or the end of two years or whatever. So let, let me ask you this. Now, you have opportunities. You have a, a, a family. Yep. So, so you, you married Nicole. You, you have children. Yep. Yes. First of all, how do you reconcile opportunity that could actually put myself in danger but also my family? And, and grabbing that opportunity, how do you reconcile in your head? I don't know whether I've actually thought about it, to be honest. Yeah. I've Sometimes it's good not to think about it. Yeah. I don't think I've ever done anything or looked at anything that would get us into that position. If we lost half of whatever we've got, we're still going to live the same as what we're doing now. <laughs> so, um, yeah. But also, you know, I think I work too hard to fail. If you make the mistake, you, you, you've got to fi- not just say I've made the mistake, but you've got to find out what did I do wrong and then correct that situation. But you've got to keep your head up because if you put your head in the sand and just keep on going, you, you're never going to succeed. You, you say you work too hard not to fail. I mean, what, what does that mean? Um, well, I've always been in the buying and selling or, or building or whatever, but if I thought I was going to lose money on the deal... I would just work out a way to at least break even. Whatever I had to do, if I had to just do a deal with somebody and give them 120 days credit that got me money back, Yes. anything, because I, I didn't like to, to go into a negative area, but you've got to put in the hours. Like, forget this nine-to-five business. Yep. You know, there's, there is a lot of professions that nine-to-five is nine-to-five, but I think to make it work, you've... Just got to work until you you're satisfied that you've actually had a, a good day today. Yeah, and then go. Okay, I'm going home. I've I've done my piece. I would have worked a minimum of twelve hours a day, six days a week. Yeah, for eight to ten years. So, so what do you think about this uh, new trend now that we have these days about uh, thirty eight hours work, or I don't want to work more than nine to five because I need to spend that time with my family and my children will. Uh, Need my time. I mean, what what do you say to those people when when you look back and you've done twelve hours? I, th- I think today it is it is trending that people need that want to spend more time with their family, and if they're not that hungry but they're earning enough money and that's what they want to do, then I think that's the best thing that they can do. But if they really want to be a little bit in front of their next door neighbour and have that little bit better car or have a five-bedroom house and not a four-bedroom house, that's not going to cut the mustard. Right. You, you've got to do the hours, and you've, when you think you've, 
it's starting to work, then you'll probably do more because you'll be you'll be looking for a six bedroom house. That's me, and and I think you've either got to teach the young kids and push them extremely hard to understand that nothing comes for free. You've got to put in the hours. You've got to put in the hard work, and if you don't. You're going to be in the same spot you are in five years' time. So mm-hmm. where do you want to be in life? Right, right. And there is people. I'm happy. I'm happy to go to work at nine, come home at five, spend all the time with my wife and my kids and all the rest of it, and I'm happy as Larry. Oh, you know what? You'll never change that person. No. But the people that want it a little bit more, they've got to be either pushed or trained into that until they start to realise, I like, I like this extra money. I like this extra... Luxury. Ex- Luxury, yeah. an explosion, or even the ego that it doesn't matter what business you're in. And if, if you're in real estate, oh, shit, I did eight listings this month. I only did six last month. I'm, I'm happy. But if I do five, then I'm not going to be happy, even though five might be okay. So it's it's more it's the ego and, the, and, and looking at the money side of it that once they get in their head, then they change. But sometimes... Need a bat over the back of the head yep, yep. <laughs> to make them understand. So what is it now? You're, you're about sixty-two. Yeah, yeah, sixty-two. And I'm just I'm listening to you, and I can I can see that one of the big words that you've been using a few times, and I can see it clear, is hungry. Is are you born with that hunger, or or, or does it ever go away? Because you're sixty-two now, you're still as hungry to me as probably. I'm I'm nowhere near as hungry as what I was. Oh really? No. Oh my goodness! Then uh, you've been a I've, monster. I've 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 lost the hungry because I've done my time. That's what I feel like. I will still take any opportunity and do something. Hold on, but that's hunger, no? No, that's just <laughs> that's just something to. Maybe to it's not the same intensity. Maybe it's not that passionate and blind pursuit. But I I'm listening to you, man, and I'm thinking if he could have an opportunity right now, rather than do the podcast, he'd grab the opportunity. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. But I, I do like my spare time now. Yes, I understand. Um, I've understand. done my time. Like I'm, I'm not a youngster anymore like you. Like you. Yep. But, um, but, but still, you, you are on the lookout. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm always looking for something. <laughs> but my problem is now, yes. at 62, is I'm not hungry enough to say, I want, I'm going to do something that I go to the office every day. Yes. I've, lo- I've lost that because... I just feel like that I've done my time. Yes. But if I can buy a nice block of land and put a house on it, you don't have to do a lot of work. You just got to tell somebody what to do. Yes. Yeah, you've got the cash but now. You've got the yeah, capital to do I, that. I've, yeah. I've lost the hunger to go and work 38 hours or 48 hours a week or whatever. Yeah. I, if I want to wake up in the morning and mow the lawn or go down and have a beer at the pub, that's my day. Yes. But if somebody says, come out and have a look at these this land... I'll be the first, let's go. Not tomorrow, let's go now. Yes. Because I will look for the opportunity because if you if you wait till tomorrow, that piece might be gone. So, yep. I mean, th- th- there's time in, in every kind of business, even in a young business, there's a time when at the beginning of that business time, you have to be prepared to pay with sweat. Yes. But once you have created a certain amount of capital, yes, you can lessen the amount of sweat, but the capital is now starting to work for you, Right. And you're very lucky you're at that position now. But for a lot of new businesses, and when you first started new, I think it wasn't maybe a period of two years, but it was probably a period of over 10 years yes. where it was sweating every oh, single day. Very much so. Yeah. When I look back of how many hours and places and countries and 
on planes that many times. I was never home for more than more than two weeks without getting back on a plane and going overseas. Yep. And venturing out to London, even though that wasn't my area, but we I wanted to make there's got to be something in England, and we did. You know, um, looking like you say, you got to look for opportunities. Going back into the, when I had the business, there was a law passed, and I can't remember the year, but it was to do with parallel imports, which means up until then you couldn't buy Colgate toothpaste from another country and bring it into Australia because you're exp- you're bringing in their brand. But that law come to Australia that you can do parallel imports as long as it is original product and not a copy. So I found in London that we could actually buy Disney products and all sorts of products <laughs> at, at much cheaper than what they were here. So we turned where you could only buy those products, some of those products in fancy stores at $30, but we'd have them for $10 in the retail stores. So that became a very big like an opportunity I was looking and then we <laughs> it was funny then we thought I got on to Western's Biscuits which is an Australian company then but they were manufacturing 70% of their goods in Indonesia but they and they printed on their packet not not for not to be consumed in Australia we imported them and they said no you can't import that I said yes we can and I said but you need to have that taken off because what are you saying? That the Indonesian people can eat this biscuit, but Australian people can't. What is it going to kill the people in Australia? Yeah. So we had Arnott's biscuits had to retract it. We end up doing about a hundred containers out of Indonesia before they worked out where we were getting them from, because we had to buy them from a second source, yep. not directly from Westerns. So and then they found out where we were getting. We did that all over the world. Wow. There's another thing that you've also said repeatedly, or I could hear, is that you have a, an original concept of friends, and you seem to always find friends to do business with. Is that true? Is that what you do these days too? Like, you have a circle of friends that maybe you could put pull money together and do things together. We 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 did do, like when we built all these houses, but. Each house was owned by the separate party, but we, we we did it all as a group. We negotiated, like on thirteen houses to be built. Yes, and we and you know, we needed you know special, whether it be the fences. So we all negotiated. Yep. But we we grouped together, but not as a financial. It was more just um, paperwork between us. Mm-hmm. And probably about eight or ten years ago, four of my mates, three no, three of my mates. They kept on asking me, take me to China. We want to see whether we can find stuff. And they've all got very, very successful companies. And I said, okay. So I took them to China as a boys' week and went to a big fair in Guangzhou. Well, sure enough, we come back. We've bought golf buggies. We've bought <laughs> stainless steel toolboxes with wooden tops. And one of the guys had a spare warehouse. So as a muck around... But the thing is, they all had full-time big businesses. So here I am, the bunny, having to worry about getting the stock in, get it sold. And I said, boys, <laughs> we've all got to... But it was just a boys' venture. Yep. But we all did good, you know. Brought in forklifts for one of his factories and at much cheaper prices. Yeah, I understand. That's an amazing thing. Yeah. No, because you, you, you went... 
from one venture with two guys and another venture with two guys, you were called the Musketeers. Yeah. So I'm just thinking the way the way that you seem to work, not only someone's going to say, this guy seems to be too lucky, he, everything works, but then also you look at relationship very differently. Mm. You know, uh, and if, if you could, instead of having 100% of something, if you could have just even 30%, but there's three of us, you would do that. Yes. Mm. Yeah. But I think all the people that I've been in business with, I can't remember ever having a major dispute with any of them, but I was always honest and trustworthy. Yes. And those guys that I was involved with were exactly the same. We were be, become very close in friendship and, and just honesty. Like, like we didn't have to bullshit to each other or, or hide this from this. Yeah. And I think, I think that was quite important the way I conducted all my businesses. Okay. So would you say that that's the first tip to becoming an, an entrepreneur or business person? I think I think quite a few things, but I think a you've got to be prepared to work hard. Yes, you've got to be, and if you've got a partner or, or and but your partner could be your wife because you might be working all day, but she's at home doing other stuff. Yeah, you've got to be honest and, and you've got to be trustworthy, mm-hmm. and don't be scared to ask for help. A lot of the young kids these days, you give them something to do, and they're too scared because they're not sure what to do tomorrow. They do the wrong thing. Yeah. And my thing was always, if you don't understand, ask. Because, but don't ask me twice. You only have to ask me once. Once you've been told, this is how you do it, then you've learnt. What happens if they ask you twice? What does it mean? Well, then then I, I would probably get a little bit cranky. Yeah. Well, I, I'd just say, well, you're obviously not listening. <laughs> you know? Um, so you pay the penalty. A bit like, a bit like we had... When we had the warehouse, in, uh, especially the one in Girawin, at certain periods of the year, we would have, from 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 20 semi-trailers waiting to be loaded in line. And the warehouse manager would give them strict instructions. They had to have their sides open, everything ready as they rolled in because we were loading them. But if one truck driver didn't do the right thing, like didn't have his doors open, he would just send him around the block. And say, get on the end of the queue. She said, no, I can't do that. You're not getting loaded. You do as we told. But it was the same thing. Like, <laughs> everything's got to work together. Yep. You know what I mean? So you, you guys have just got to learn that if you tell them this has got to be done, they have to do that. And there might be different formulas of, you know, you say you've got to do it this way or and I say this way. Maybe it's not 100% right, but try it my way first. If you can prove me different then I'll listen to you. I don't know. That, but I think kids these days are a lot harder to, to push because they all think they, they know better when you're at my age. They Technologies and all the rest of it, but it's more... Actually, the most important part in life with business is common sense. Yes. You can be... Like Very I, hard to get these days. Maybe, yeah. I bet... Like, I was a nobody at school and all the rest of it, but I was very street smart and common sense. And I think that's what got me through in life. I didn't know all about technologies and all the rest of it, but I knew you had it inside you, how things should work. And you could see that this is right, this is not right, this is wrong. But, and I think if you can teach somebody a bit of common sense and street smart, it doesn't always, in the way I was, it doesn't have to be by the book. 
because if I ran my business by the book, I would have went bankrupt. And that was simple. I, I wouldn't have any other thoughts. I, w- I would have gone bankrupt. I was outside the square. But I could only see that I had to do something different to be... I didn't want to be inside that square. I wanted to be outside. But not all businesses are like that. So depending on what business that you're in, I would say how much you, you've got to stick to There's the two training. things you're saying. So, so what you're talking about outside the square, because outside the square, is it... Um Uh, you're not saying that we have to be illegal. We no, have no, to be no, doing no, no, illegal no, no, stuff, no, no. right? No. So what is outside the square? Well, I'm running my little show here. Um, let's imagine I've got a small company in in real estate and I want to uh, sell more houses. How do I go outside the square? I think each, each case to me would be a separate a separate deal where you go into some some people's houses and they're happy as Larry, they love you, a good bloke. Yeah, where do I sign? You don't have to go anywhere. You just you've given them, but then you've got the the ones that no, I'm not paying you three percent, four percent. I only want to pay you two percent. Yep. You can you can argue why you're going to charge more to give a better service, but outside the square, if you're going to leave that property and you're not going to get that deal, then you've got to try and offer something a bit better. Yes. Because the way I was brought up, you're better off having. 60% of what you were going to make, because 60% of 10,000 is 6,000. Nothing of 10,000 is nothing. Yep. And it would be more important to me to secure deals but get it back otherwise, you know. I, I suppose with property it's not as easy as that. But, you know, just signing off the deal, if you've got to bend or you've got to give them something, tell them you cut their hedges free of charge, <laughs> what, whatever, yes. if you sign like the deal, yeah. I'll, I'll fix this up so it looks pretty and all the rest of it. It's cost you $200, $300, $400. That, that, that's what I would say outside the square, not yes. just, you know, this is what we do, this is the marketing, this is this. Offer them things that maybe other people don't offer. Yes. But not all the time. It's just... You, all It's the, case by case, case yeah, by case. Case yeah. by case, and, and, and they're, when they're hard... And some of those things don't cost you anything. Like in real terms, if you find the right labourer who, who's going to spend four hours going around the house hedging up and cost you $150, bucks, then you're going to get a $30,000 commission. Just buy them, don't buy them Don Perignon at the end of the sale, buy them a bottle of Verve so you've got your money back. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I'm still on saving the money. I, I like it, I like it, I like it. Now, one thing I want to ask you, I mean... It's not every day I meet entrepreneurs. What is common sense? Is that something that you build? Even why is it that mm-hmm. common sense these days is not so common? Why? What? What is it that people are doing? I, a lot of people they start a business and all they have is dreams and hope, and somehow they lose the connection between common sense and those dreams. You know, they start going into a hole and they still holding onto the dreams. They don't make any adjustment. And yet, something inside is sending them a message. Maybe you need to adjust. I don't, I don't know how to teach anybody common sense. I think it depends on your upbringing. Right. I think if you, if if you've been brought up and there's plenty of money around and things being done around the house for you, I, I think you haven't got as much common sense. <laughs> um, I better stop this with my kids. <laughs> um, but. I always have used to like a gut feeling. 
like it's a gut feel for you okay yeah like uh, you know i don't know like the property market like like you do obviously but if it was a product you would look at the product and you'd go that's going to sell but the first thing i would look at is i know that retails for like five dollars what do i want to retail it for or wholesale it for to be special because some some like a property if that's a million dollar property that's a million dollars today it's a million dollars tomorrow but if i really had to sell it if to, to make it like fast would it be 950 mm-hmm. to make more people come yeah. and i know like you're the real estate you're supposed to get more money for the client but sometimes the clients may want too much you got to ha- ha- common sense to me how do you convince that customer yep this is really what your property's worth we can ask $2 million, but I'm going to be sitting here in, in two years' time and you're not going to have a sale. But the gut feeling is what is it worth or, or how, do you, how do you change their minds or just common sense? I don't know. I think you said I, I don't know how to teach. I really don't know how to teach anybody that anymore. No. I think it's not that teachable because I think you said another word for your common sense. It's a gut feel. Yeah. It's something after maybe uh, 40 years of dealing and to buying and selling, you have developed that knack of just sensing it. And there's yeah. no logic. There's no two plus two mm. equals four. It just hits you, right? You're looking at things. Yes, you're thinking about it. And then suddenly you have that feeling that just hits you. And I think that maybe that is your common sense. And and I don't know whether that is experience, but one thing I know for sure, it's uh, invaluable. You're gonna I, have to find I, a way I think to it clone. Starts with people when they're young, yeah. But I think the common sense gets stronger as you get more experience in whatever avenue of business, yes, that you are trying. I get it. Um, but getting them to that point where they can actually see the common sense or suggesting ideas just to make people feel good, yeah. Um, and I didn't. I did the same sort of thing with with some of the, the products that I used to sell. If, if I couldn't sell something and it was hopeless, I would get my best customers and turn a $5 item into a two ninety five retail. And if I could, even if I couldn't get me money back, but my customer would never forget that I just gave him an unbelievable deal. And then when they come in next time, they would, they would always buy more stock. Yeah, yeah. No. I'd take a loss, yep. but I couldn't get rid of the shit anyway. Yeah, yeah. But just little things like that. And, like, I'm thinking of property... You know, if you've got to give them a little bit extra before they start, which costs nothing, but they go, how good a nice bloke is he? Yeah, I like that. That, to me, is a bit of common sense. Get You might get a little bit more trust. And, you know, and if, if on some you don't sell the house for whatever reason, okay, it's cost you a few hundred dollars. Yeah. That's, yeah, what I always tell my wife, bad day at the races, so. <laughs> well... Thank you so much for your time today, David. I, uh, I really appreciate it. I've learned a few things. Well, I'm so I guarantee you that people are going to really learn a lot of things here. Mate, I can't wait to um, probably uh, get you back, maybe to talk about some of these deals that you've done in more details at some stage. Would love to, Thomas. Much appreciated for having me Thank you on your so podcast. Much. Thank you so much. Thank you.